0: Father, we just heard the story of Ezra reading the word of the Lord in the Old Testament, Jesus proclaiming the word of the Lord in the New Testament. And Lord, we want to be people who hear your word and act on your word, and we pray that you would speak to us today. Amen. you'd like to take a seat. If uh, you're ever on a list of people to do readings in church, pray that you don't get Nehemiah 8, uh, which is the reading that Anna read for us today. Those names are pretty tricky. Well done. I've no idea if you pronounced them correctly or wrongly, but neither is anybody else. We're going to be uh, thinking about that passage from Nehemiah this morning. In order to get what's going on in this passage, you have to understand uh, something of where it comes in the history of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. In many ways, the golden age of Israel was the reign of Kings David and his son Solomon. The people were established as a kingdom. A capital was established in Jerusalem. Uh, The temple was built. Uh, Worship was carried out faithfully. Uh, Wealth uh, flew into the country as it became a trading nation. Uh, The law was taught by the priests and the scribes. Following David's death, divisions begin to creep in. He has uh, several sons, they become rivals with one another for his throne. In time, the kingdom, the one kingdom of Israel, is divided. Ten tribes in the north separate off and become Israel. Uh, Two tribes in the south separate off and become Judah. Two different sets of kings, uh, two different uh, ways of worshipping. Israel is the larger of the two tribes, has the greater army. Uh, Judah is the junior. All that Judah really has going for it is that it's centred around Jerusalem, uh, King David's capital. In 721 BC, Assyria, uh, the superpower of the day, invades northern Israel and carries them all off into captivity. 135 years later, another superpower rises, Babylon. And Jeremiah tells the story of Judah's final years as they live in fear of Babylon approaching and turning its gaze to what's left of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. In 606 BC, uh, the long-feared disaster strikes. Babylon invades, subjugates uh, Judah, and the first of three deportations begin. First of all, the royal court... Uh, The king and the leaders of uh, Judah are carried off back to Babylon into captivity. The king's eyes are put out. Surely, the king of Babylon thinks, without their leaders, this little uh, state can no longer stand against me. Daniel is one of those who's carried away. And the book of Daniel is the story of Daniel living in Babylonian captivity few years later, there's the second deportation. Judah's managed to keep its identity, and so this time the craftsmen are carried off into captivity. The priests, uh, the leaders of the faith, merchants, those who make stuff, uh, they're carried away and deported to Babylon. Ezekiel is one of their number, And his book is the story of him uh, prophesying, trying to be faithful to God in the midst of captivity. But Judah stubbornly retains its identity. Finally, the Babylonians think there's nothing for it. We'll just have to wipe them out completely. And so in 586, uh, the third and final deportation takes place. The army comes again and this time everything is flattened. Jerusalem is levelled, the walls are broken down, the temple is destroyed and everyone is carried off into captivity. Men, women, children, livestock. Nothing remains of the people of Judah. It's from this period that we get Psalm 137. We read this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion, of course, was Jerusalem. Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last for 70 years. During the time of exile, uh, the power of Babylon waned and a new superpower came to the fore, this time the Persians. They conquered Babylonia. Their king was King Sirius, and he had a different approach to subjugated peoples. He said that anybody who he conquered in the realm of Babylonia, they could return to their homeland. They could rebuild their temples, and they could worship their gods. There was just one proviso. They would have to pray for him as their king in their temples. And so, in 537 BC, exactly 70 years since the first deportation, the first Jews return to Jerusalem. They find rubble and scorched earth. A small group follows. Ezra, a priest, joins them. And he rebuilds the altar. He rebuilds the temple. He re-establishes the faith of Israel after 70 years. A few years later, the final third return occurs. This time, Nehemiah is the leader of the people. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. He makes it safe and secure. He gives the people a safe haven. He establishes the identity of Jerusalem once again. Then we come to Nehemiah, chapter 8. We've had the rebuilding of the temple. We've had the rebuilding of the walls, the fabric of the city. And in chapter 8, we see the rebuilding of a people. The rebuilding of a people's identity. The reestablishing of a nation. The people gather together. And they call for Ezra to come before them. Remember, he's a priest. His role is to uh, offer worship and to preach from the scriptures. We're told that uh, the people asked him to bring the book of the law, which they hadn't heard read for tens of years, and to read it to them. They're hungry for God's word. Spiritual renewal is always preceded by a hunger. For God's Word. We see it in the scriptures, we see it throughout the history of the church. Huge crowds came to see Jesus and to listen to his teaching. One day so many that he feeds 5,000 of them miraculously. We know the story. What we often miss is at the end of this miracle Jesus begins to teach them and we're told that it was a hard teaching So hard that many of them walked away. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Do you want to leave too? Do you want to go as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. I wonder how we see the scriptures. I wonder if a hunger for the scriptures, a sense that they're the words of eternal life, uh, is part of our faith, part of our experience of discipleship. In parts of the world where the scriptures are hard to come by, and where the church is hard-pressed, we see a real hunger for them. I was reading of a Christian ministry in China, uh, working with North Korean refugees. People who have escaped from the regime in North Korea crossed the border into China, uh, many of whom, unfortunately, will be uh, sent back by the Chinese authorities. uh, Christianity is outlawed in North Korea. There's an underground church reckoned to be in the number of around 400,000. But many Christians have been rounded up and placed in what we could honestly call concentration camps. 6,000 are in one prison camp alone. They're allowed no scriptures. They're allowed no worship. They're even forbidden to look up to the sky. I lift my eyes up to the heavens. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Well, in North Korea, you're forbidden even to look up to the heavens. This ministry works with these North Korean refugees, many of whom will be sent back some of whom will become Christians and leaders in the church. They have just 48 hours with them. 48 hours to teach them. Probably uh, the only Bible teaching they'll receive in their lives. They give each of them what's known as a sock Bible, a tiny little copy of the scriptures they can hide in their socks. One of the workers describes this ministry of uh, teaching people in this situation. She writes, It's exhausting. I hardly sleep, we hardly eat. My tongue and lips are cracked from all the talking. I ask a lot of questions. I really want to get to know the person and to teach them the way of God. The people in Ezra's day, in Nehemiah's day, are hungry for the scriptures. People in North Korea are hungry For the scriptures. Why? Why? Because the scriptures tell us who we are. The scriptures tell us how to live. The scriptures show us who God is. The people in Ezra's day are hungry for the scriptures and they also show a real reverence for the scriptures. Ezra stands on a high platform so that all the people can see him. As he opens the scriptures, the people stand, just as we stood when the gospel reading was announced. Ezra prays. He praises the Lord God. The people lift up their hands. They respond, Amen, Amen. And then we're told they bow down and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're engaged. They're present. They're attentive. They're responsive. But so often, we aren't. We're here, but we're not really here. Sometimes the sermon, uh, the preacher, the worship is off key. Sometimes it has more to do with our hearts. Both a congregation and a preacher need to prepare for a sermon. My preparation is done during the week. It's done in my study. It's done with commentaries and Bible guides. It's done thinking throughout the day. Your preparation is done during the week too. If if you are to have a real and living faith, then you need to be reading the scriptures through the week too. You need to be making time to meet God daily. Needs to be opening your heart to hear what he's saying to you. Before each service, I make it my practice to pray. You should make it your practice to pray too. As we gather together, spend a few moments, there's plenty of time, to stop and to ask God to speak to you, to ask God to speak to us to ask God to reveal himself in our worship. prayer I learnt when I first became a Christian is a prayer I, I pray often when I read the Bible. Lord, speak to me and give me the courage to live according to your teaching. The people have a reverence for God's word and they also respond to God's word. We're told that they're gripped by conviction. Uh, The people weep. So much so that Nehemiah tells them to rejoice. They've been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. When scripture is read, God speaks. He speaks through sermons He speaks through the discussion as a home group as we uh, wrestle with a passage. He speaks as we uh, read his word on our own with the Bible on our knees. Sometimes our hearts are gripped as we see something for the first time. Sometimes God impresses on us something uh, we've known for a while, but uh, suddenly strikes us with a new urgency. Sometimes an insight comes into our lives uh, or or our situation in a way that we've not been aware of before. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. He also says, today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 9, the people realize that, uh, according to their calendar, it's the time for the Festival of the Booths, their version of the Harvest Festival. Something they'd uh, forgotten about, something they'd lost track of in all those years in exile. Immediately, they say, well, this is what we need to do. We need to be celebrating this festival. They gather together and they build their booths and they celebrate the harvest. They don't just hear God's word. They're not just convicted by God's word, but they act upon their convictions. The rebuilding of the people begins with a hunger for God's word. The rebuilding of a people uh, begins with a reverence for God's word. The rebuilding of a people uh, begins by acting upon God's word. Nehemiah 8 is a significant story. It's one of the most significant uh, chapters in the history of Israel. It's a story of God coming again to his people who felt themselves abandoned. Who's known what it's like to be in exile, who've returned to their land but are not sure if God will return to them. It's the story of God giving his people a heart to know him and to love his word. It's the story of God's reviving grace towards a people who have sinned and fallen and failed. It's the story of God's keeping his promises to restore and revive. This is our story too. This is our history too. But Nehemiah 8 isn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. It's a signpost that points ahead to the fulfillment of all God's promises in the person of Christ. Jesus is the greatest expression of God's mercy and the greatest expression of God keeping his promises. He's the living word of God, who comes and dwells among us. So today, and particularly as we approach this season of Lent, which is coming soon, let us resolve to be people of God's word. Let's ask God to give us hearts that receive his word with joy, that are hungry to know the scriptures. Let's ask him to revive our love for him and to make us a people that not only honour the word, not only stand to hear it read, but people who in our hearts and our lives respond to the word. Let's be a people who rejoice that God has kept his promises to be faithful to us and God has made us his own through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your written word. Lord, we pray that you would give us as a church and as your people a hunger for your word. That we would have the Bible not just sitting on a shelf or in a drawer, but in our hands and in our hearts and on our lips. Lord, may we be people whose faith is moulded by you, shaped by you, people resolved to live our lives according to your word. May we know your truth, and in knowing your truth, Know the truth that sets us free. In the name of Christ, amen. We're going to respond in song. Uh, two songs that are on our sheet. Uh, we'll start with, I'll offer up my life. Andrew's going to lead us. And then we're going to, this is my life.